0: And now, The Travel Show with Arthur and Pauline Fromer. Your chance to talk to the publishers of the nation's best-selling travel guide series. Whether your travel destination is around your corner or any corner of the world, The Fromers will help you get the most out of your travel experience and save you money at the same
1: time. And now, Arthur and Pauline Fromer.
0: And this is The Travel Show in which we talk about vacations. Welcome. I'm Arthur Frommer. And I'm Pauline Frommer. And in the time to come, we're going to be discussing travel.
2: And part of that discussion will have to do with what interests you. So I'm giving an invitation. If you're in the travel industry or if you're a traveler with a question, email me at at Yahoo.com. I find some of my guests that way. Not many, but some. Also, if you're a traveler, you can't do better than to follow us on social media. We have some really fun feeds. Look for the word Fromers, which is F-R-O-M-M-E-R-S, on Pinterest, on Instagram, on Twitter, and on Facebook. And finally, another invitation. We hope you'll visit us at fromers.com. That's our whiz bang website where you'll find all kinds of great information that will really help you save money and have a better time on your next vacation. I promise. Okay. Pauline. (laughs) Quite a promise. Let's talk
0: first today about the fairly obvious fact that when tourism to a particular location starts to fade, the reaction of hotels in that location is to cut prices for their rooms. And smart travelers watch those price declines and often uh, confine their, their locations to the cities or nations that are in decline currently. The city of Las Vegas and the nation of Mexico are having such problems. It is virtually certain that Las Vegas and Mexico will both be cutting their their uh, room rates in the coming uh, months of of, 20, of the year 2020. Tourism to Las Vegas is currently down several percentage points, and that's a condition that the local authorities explain by, by the fact that there apparently is a sharp decline in the number of Californians who come to Las Vegas using their automobile, their mm. self-drive cars. Apparently, Californians are are angry about the fact that the moment they arrive in Las Vegas, they have to pay a parking fee, oh. and then they have to pay uh, the dreaded uh, resort, resort fee. And, That's interesting. As well, and yeah. they're not coming in the same numbers. And yet, in the face of reduced tourism, which is beyond dispute, the city of Las Vegas has embarked on on gigantic building projects. Amazingly enough, they are currently. Uh, finishing construction of a 65,000-seat football stadium. They are also uh, uh, building two giant hotels that will have thousands of rooms apiece. They are also building a convention center and a conference uh, center, despite the fact that it is crystal clear that that patronage, tourism to Las Vegas is declining. In the next five years, New hotels in Las Vegas will add over 12,000 rooms wow. of additional capacity. And many ob- observers are therefore predicting that there will be such an imbalance between uh, s- uh, supply and demand, I mean, the supply going up and demand going down, that smart travelers will be uh, saving a great deal of money by mm-hmm by negotiating with the hotels of Las Vegas. And a great many uh, observers are also uh, saying... That persons going to Las Vegas this year will be able to negotiate big reductions huh. in the prices that they pay for rooms, and they may be able to uh, force elimination of the hated resort fee <laughs> because of the fact that that, that location is. is so, yes, but, but can you raise it, the r- increase? Well, right. the, the the that's that's fine now. That so far for Las Vegas, the nation of Mexico. Wait,
2: but can I, before we leave Las Vegas. Yes. This has been an issue with uh, so many people disliking having to pay for parking, so much so that a couple of resorts are getting rid of the parking fee. They've actually gone back to what they used to do, just a handful. I think everybody is now waiting and seeing if that means those resorts get all the business. We'll see. But yeah, it's a huge issue. You people are very remember that I referred to the,
0: to the resort fee as the dreaded or the oh, resort Oh, yes. Fee. Ab- people let, dread let, it. Let's Let's move on, Pauline. Let's move on to the nation of Mexico, which is also experiencing a slight downturn in its current tourism. That's a condition that some people attribute to a slight uptick in the amount of violence that has been set up by the various drug uh, cartels Mm -hmm. of of Mexico. But others claim that a more important reason is because the tourist authorities of Mexico have recently eliminated a large portion of their tourism uh, advertising budget in favor of using those funds that such a downturn uh, saves on the construction of new rail lines and trains in the Yucatan Peninsula. It has also been argued that Mexico is placing too much of an emphasis on the operation of hotels that are all-inclusive in their policies. Mm. It is said that all-inclusive hotels are not favored by the many young millennials who now constitute a large portion of the touristic uh, audience for people going to uh, Mexico. Millennials, it is argued, favor a more experiential uh, experience from their t- trips. They, they want to experience the culture yeah. of Mexico, and they don't do that at an all-inclusive hotel you know, I where don't, they never le- leave the premises.
2: Right. And there are also interesting ethical issues with all-inclusive hotels. I don't know if you remember this, but Pope John Paul II, uh, the not the last pope, but the pope before, uh, he came out against all-inclusive hotels, of all things. He felt that they hurt local communities because they kept tourists entirely within the worlds of these huge multinational companies. Isn't it
0: incredible that the Pope, of all people, should be taking that as an issue that he wanted to discuss? I think
2: it's an important one. I think it actually is badly impacting uh, many Catholic communities. If you look at at, uh, uh, Latin America, definitely.
0: They do not like all-inclusive hotels. But Pauline, whatever the reason, tourism to Mexico has dropped. By several percentage points recently, creating a grand opportunity for would be tourists to insist on lower hotel rates as a condition of going there. In other words, a reduction in tourism creates a big opportunity uh for uh, for would be tourists Mexico and Las Vegas yeah. are now confronting such a problem But
2: dad you started out by talking about the increase in drug cartel violence so that might turn off some people going to Mexico but i think it's important to note that the Yucatan peninsula is not a place where that's happening. And that's where the so-called Mayan Riviera is, where people go, they visit Cancun, Playa del Carmen. Tourism
0: there is holding up all right, but tourism to the rest of Mexico is definitely down, not enormously, but by several percentage points, let's say three or four percentage points, and that is causing a a big problem on the part of the tourist authorities of Mexico. I'd like to continue today's program by pointing out that most articles on travel and travel-related guidebooks spend a great deal of space on rules for saving money when you purchase airfares, but they talk less frequently about rules for saving money when you eat, when you go, oh, okay. <laughs> go to a restaurant. The, the single most important principle in this area is always to split main courses with your travel companion. That That's because nearly all... Uh, international restaurants are famous for the oversized portion of food that they serve to you when you order a main uh, course.
2: I'd say domestic uh, restaurants too.
0: The, the well, the, if if they're creating a, 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 an approach to food that is that, that
2: involves American a, a main food course. Yeah. portions uh, tend to a, be oversized course. I would say
0: well uh, therefore try sometimes to serve yourself with enough food well they 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 sometimes serve you with enough food for two or three <laughs> yes. people and therefore the smart traveler orders just one main course for the two of you and perhaps one smaller uh, appetizer and, and then a then, dessert you then split the uh, the plate that you've also ordered, you should ask for an additional plate, you split it with your companion, and you still have enough food for the both of, both and of you. And if you're still hungry, right.
2: you can order more. By
0: placing th- half of the main course on that extra plate, one nearly always lowers food prices in half. Yep. And yet you also nearly always find that you, sent, you can't even finish the amount of food that you have received on that extra plate. Now, uh, what else is important? The location of the restaurants you choose for your meals is also important. Smart travelers seek out the restaurants that are located alongside the city's main food market. And yes. there they find that the restaurants found in those locations are are always favored by the main market uh, uh, p- persons who operate these main markets with lower prices for the foods and fresher that,
2: food because they're right next to the market. That's, lower that's prices a great of
0: fresh food. A city's main marketplace is almost always the location for the cheapest food in that location. And what's what's the runner-up in low cost? Uh, located uh, restaurants, restaurants that are near a marketplace. It's the street food uh, served on the sidewalks of virtually every <laughs> every uh, major location. city. Yeah, uh, look for those street corner markets. They too have some of the lowest prices.
2: That's in very food. true. And I would say conversely, when a restaurant has a great view, it usually has lousy food. It's <laughs> I don't know why, but that's almost always the case. We have to take our first break. We'll be right back. Welcome back to The Travel Show. I'm Pauline Fromer here with my dad, Arthur. And on the phone, we have Steve Wellmeyer. He's the managing director for the U.S. Operations of Poseidon Expeditions. Uh, welcome to The Travel Show, Steve. Thank you very much for the invitation, Pauline. Oh, my pleasure. So I, I heard about you guys because I was wandering around the Boston Travel Show and I stopped at your booth. and was kind of astounded by the types of adventures you offer, I mean uh, they really are uh, 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 the types of cruises people want to take when they're they're doing their bucket list destinations. So tell tell the, our listeners a little bit about Poseidon Expeditions.
3: Well, we're part of the what you would call the expedition cruise segment of the larger cruise industry. Uh, expedition cruising generally involves smaller ships, um, under 500, um, to my taste, really less than 200 people. Mm. Uh, The use of zodiacs uh, to take people ashore because you're going to destinations where there's no infrastructure. There are no piers, there are no hotels, there are no docks. Uh, And also a a large component of, of education and enrichment about the destination. And in our case, Poseidon Expeditions, We specialize uh, and focus exclusively on the polar regions. Uh, So the Arctic and the Antarctic. Yes, both Antarctica and the Arctic. And we also do something that's a little different from most of our friendly competitors, uh, uh, and that is the North Pole. We charter a Russian nuclear-powered icebreaker. And we offer about three trips every summer to the geographic North Pole, to so, 90 degrees north.
2: Yeah, see, that's what blew my mind, <laughs> that you're chartering a Russian nuclear-powered boat. And it has an
3: entirely Russian crew, right? Yeah, that's correct. We hire um, a catering team and hospitality team for the food service on board every summer. But other than that, the crew is completely manned by uh, Russian um, uh, officers uh, on the bridge and Russian able-bodied seamen uh and i, I assume some nuclear engineers oh, i hope so
2: yeah <laughs> <laughs> and and is there much interaction between those folks and your passengers or not really
3: yes in the dining room the uh the service staff is russian uh the the um hospitality team that does the um uh the rooms, the room service, they're all Russian, and they know a little bit of English and uh, are super friendly folks. And uh, it, it's quite a, a nice change of pace from what you usually find on cruise ships. And they're very eager to please and very happy to uh, give a good impression of their, of their mother country to uh, uh, people that come on the ship from all over the world.
2: Now, are there scientists aboard your ships doing uh, experiments? Um, did I get
3: that right? That's a, that's a good question. And there is there is more and more of an effort by the expedition cruise operators, and we're one of them, but there are many more that you've, you're familiar with, like Lindblad, for example, or Quark, um, who make an effort to uh, make cabins available, uh, if there are some empty cabins available for scientists. To take them down to the antarctic peninsula or for example on a couple of recent cruises we had a couple of um believe this term or not called penguin counters and these are some scientists who do a census every year of penguins at the various landing sites in the Antarctic Peninsula. So we take them free of charge, and they go off in a Zodiac and do their work while the rest of the passengers are doing a landing and hiking around a bit. So, yeah, we try to cooperate as much as we can.
2: Right. We're speaking with uh, Steve Wellmeyer. He is the Managing Director for the U.S. Operations of Poseidon Expeditions. And let's, you know, this year, Fromers chose the Poles as a top place to go in 2020. we Feel that there's a lot of excitement about going to the Arctic and the Antarctic, par- partially because of climate change. People want to see these magnificent <clears throat> locales until they're before they're gone. Um, and I've also heard that it's easier to get to some of these places because the melting has opened up new routes. Does that affect you at all?
3: Well, it, probably not as much as you might think, because the uh, the the icing in of the of the different um, polar areas that we visit, both in the Arctic and Antarctica, it still changes year to year. So mm-hmm. while there are overall trends, it's not really affecting uh, tourism yet, and it's really not affecting wildlife to the extent that most people would notice it. There are, small incremental um, changes happening. Um, but it's, it's kind of difficult. You know, you're kind of looking into a forest and trying to find a tree and it, mm. it, it's not so uh, easy as you right, might think. Right.
2: Now, I think a lot of people are excited to visit one of the poles, the Arctic or the Antarctic region, but they don't know which to pick. So can you give us in a nutshell what the seasons are for each and why you'd go to one or the other?
3: Sure. Most people start in Antarctica, and that's, of course, down south. And people pick that because they can check that seventh continent off their uh-huh. bucket list. Right. So that's that's usually a motivation for people, plus great wildlife with penguins and whales and seals. So then people kind of graduate to the Arctic, although there's plenty there to, to, to in, uh, attract people for a first-time visitor. Um, so... And there you have different regions you can visit, Svalbard, which is an archipelago above Norway, Franz Josefland, which is in the Russian high arctic, also an archipelago of islands. So polar bears, that's the main attraction for mm. the Arctic. Um, the Canadian high arctic is also very popular. and. Uh, The Northwest Passage is becoming a popular cruise, and that, as you said earlier, is facilitated by a more and more greater likelihood that you can actually make it through all the way from uh, the East Coast to the West Coast. And what, what are the seasons for each? The seasons for the Arctic are from late May, early June through the end of September. So that's for the north. So that coincides with our summer months. And then for Antarctica, it's during the astral summer. So that's from late October through late February, early March. And these are smaller boats, as you mentioned at
2: the top. How far in advance
3: does one have to book to get a berth? Well, we we just came out, for example, with our 2000 or 2021 mm, uh, wow. Arctic schedule and 2021-22 Antarctic schedule. So we're working about two years in advance, mm. and we highly recommend that people try to Book well plan in well in advance yeah. and, and give themselves a year wow. um, Interesting. for this kind of a cruise.
2: Well, if people are interested, they can go to www dot com is that the website web address
3: yeah they'll find us there correct all
2: right well it's been a pleasure having you on steve thank you so much for appearing on the fromer travel show thank you pauline and thank you arthur Listening to the Fromer Travel Show. I'm Pauline Fromer here with my dad, Arthur Fromer, and on the line we have Andrea Sachs, travel writer, par extraordinaire for the Washington Post. That should be your title, Andrea. I love it. I'm gonna get a plaque. <laughs> All right, yeah, we'll get you a plaque. Um you wrote a really interesting article that seems to have a contradiction at its base. You wrote about different festivals all over the United States, but these are festivals where there won't be too many crowds. If the festivals have less crowds, aren't they less worthy of going to? I mean, isn't that the point of a festival or no?
4: I don't think so. And
2: this this stemmed
4: from a project we did recently with Over Tourism, And we kind of thought, you know, there are some of these major events that Everyone is excited to go to, and then they come back and they're kind of complaining about uh, the hmm. crowds. I'm thinking of, which you know probably well, New Year's Eve in Times Square, Mardi Gras in New Orleans, which has great culture, but you just hear about the crowds and the expensive hotels. And, right. and sometimes you kind of lose the intimacy of connecting with the community and connecting, connecting with the other people that attend. So we took 12 really well-known festivals and holiday events and then found an alternative.
2: All right, so let's count them down. Okay. Instead of the Sundance Film Festival, which is uh, obviously one of the most important film festivals on the circuit, takes place every year in uh, in uh, Utah. You see all kinds of Parker-clad celebrities on the news. Where should people go?
4: Okay, we're we're sending people to the same location, Park Ooh. City, but it's Slam Dance. Slam Dance. So it's kind of like the the bad little sister that's like I'm going to start my own and it's more inclusive it doesn't involve Robert Redford but they've had some really amazing names you know people affiliated with current directors of Star Wars and the woman who did the girl series on HBO and
2: really really well known but it's open to everybody Lena Dunham thank you you, Lena so is it less more indie films than you get at Sundance nowadays Slamdance and when is it it is the same time,
4: so they overlap. It's a oh. little shorter, but this year it was January 24th through 30th, whereas Sundance was January 23rd through February 2nd.
2: Huh. And so you're also, not going to save any money, because it, it probably is it's an expensive time to be there, I would think, right?
4: It is, yeah. Yeah. It definitely is, and so you might have to stay with that scrappy mentality, maybe a little bit out of Park City.
2: Hmm. Well, here's another one that I thought was interesting, and and it's another case where it's the same timing, but this in this type, it's this different place. Instead of going to New Orleans for a carnival, where do you go?
4: Okay, I want to go to this one. This one is Eunice Mardi Gras in Eunice, Louisiana. So it's hmm. Cajun country, and they have this amazing tradition called the Career to Mardi Gras, hmm. where the participants dress up in like crazy costumes with tassels and masks, and then they ride out into the countryside and they beg for gumbo ingredients from the neighbors, and then they come back and have a big pot of gumbo. Well, and then while, while they're out getting the ingredients, everyone in town is partying and dancing
2: in the street. So it's not a parade. Do you follow them as they're begging for food? You can. You can't only horseback riding people can
4: actually participate and ask for ingredients, but you can follow in a car and you
2: don't have to dress up. And you don't have to dress up. Well that sounds wacky and people yeah. people know they're coming, I guess, so they're they're wet, they're ready with the gumbo ingredients.
4: Yeah, no, I don't think they close up their house and go to New Orleans. Like I think they're excited and they're on the yard with their with their sausage.
2: Wow, interesting. All right. Instead of going to Art Basel, which is a massive art fair in Miami Beach each year, where should people go?
4: We recommend the Affordable Art Fair, which is in New York, and mm-hmm. it's held twice a year in March and September. And, and it's the same idea of having galleries and artists and talks, and it's really for art collectors, but... The prices are much more
2: reasonable, starting at $100. Wow. So that's Mm -hmm. not a paint-by-numbers painting, I hope. No. (laughs) Because I had actually heard that for most galleries now, they all have to go to these art fairs, that actually they make more money at art fairs than they do selling direct out of galleries. And so they're all on this circuit, and I guess maybe they take their second-tier artists to this show. I mean, who are the people who are being shown
4: Well, I mean, you have some well-known galleries, Cube Gallery, Quantum Contemporary Arts, but I do think it's more, you're not going to get the the names that you see in museums. You'll get kind of the mid-tier. So it's really for the starter collector. Or, you know, someone who just feels like they want some art in their home but mm. doesn't have doesn't want to put the investment in. But they do have people on staff. There's a tour by one of the, the executive director who will take you through huh. and kind of give you a, a smart
2: tour of what you're seeing and how to judge art. Interesting. All right. Next one, Burning Man. I have <laughs> never been. I know people who go. I know people who go yearly. They're the people who in college I thought were really cool. And now I think, wow, well, they've had Wacky lives. Uh, so, Burning Man. T- wh- what's the? What should you do if you don't want to spend uh, a week covered with dust in the desert? <laughs> and
4: naked, naked, rolling,
2: and in naked. Dust. Yeah. We are suggesting
4: lightning in a bottle, hmm. which is Bu- uh, Buena Vista Lake. So there's no dust. It's just beautiful lakes, and it's in May, and it attracts about twenty thousand people, and it has. Bands and it has a lot of installation art. This whole di- the idea of experiential arts like huh. you're a par- you're a part of it. You too are an artist. It's not just looking.
2: Is it of- in a desert region or is it just the same thing but not in the desert? It's a, it's a similar thing without the desert. Interesting. All right. Your body's the water that you can jump into. And then there's always Coachella Valley mm-hmm. Music and Arts Festival, which is one of the biggest music festivals in the world. What's the good alternative to that?
4: We found Bottle Rock Napa Valley in California in wine country. Hmm. And this one I love because they have top line musicians, but they also have this pairing where they'll take a well-known musician like Snoop Dogg and they'll match him with a culinary great like... Morimoto, and then they do a demonstration. Wow! The Snoop Dogg of Morimoto did a demonstration on rolling sushi, which really plays (laughs) to both of their strengths.
2: Interesting. (laughs) All right. Well, it's a great article for anybody tuning in late. Go to the Washington Post. Read. Get crowds off your calendar in 2020. Thank you, Andrea, for appearing on the Travel Show. Always. Thank you. You're listening to the Fromer Travel Show. I'm Pauline Fromer, and on the phone, we have an eminent name in travel journalism. He's Scott McCartney. He is the middle seat columnist for the Wall Street Journal. Welcome back to the Travel Show, Scott.
1: Good to be with you, Pauline.
2: So you recently had a column about what flyers or would-be flyers can expect when they try to use their loyalty points. What are the biggest changes that we're seeing in the coming months?
1: Well, um, the biggest change, I think, for for travelers is how they uh, qualify for elite status, um, mm. how they earn that elite status. Um, and United has, has made a significant change um, starting January 1st. Uh, where this year um, they've basically taken miles out of the qualification uh, matrix. Um, what what counts most is how much you spend with the airline and then you have to meet a certain uh, number of flights. Uh, and um, this is going to thin out the ranks of their top tiers of frequent flyers and already is is angering people who um, used to have uh, top status, and now are going to be bumped lower.
2: So this is something, though, that some of the uh, that their competitors have done already, right? Uh,
1: well, the notion of including a spending requirement um, is is pretty widespread now, and right. that's been going on for a few years. Um, but um, uh, other airlines haven't yet taken out uh, mileage completely. Oh. Um, uh, although uh, I would say you know one exception is is JetBlue um, with with their uh, mosaic level um, they they count flights. Um, they've made an interesting change. Uh, it's well worth mentioning, angered a lot of their uh, top flyers, <laughs> Yeah, uh, where uh, they've introduced a, a basic economy fare, the, the bare bones fare that we've seen a lot of airlines do. Right. Um, and that fare's is not going to count towards your, your qualification. So oh, if boy. you're a JetBlue flyer and you buy uh and And it's not really a lower price it's just a reclassification of its lowest price yeah uh and you know for people who um talk to one guy who who he and his wife both they commute back and forth uh, use JetBlue. Uh, their job's in another city, and, and they commute, and they can buy tickets way in advance because they know exactly when they're going to be doing it. So right. they, they use um, uh, low-priced fares. And and now, potentially, none of those flights would count towards uh, getting elite status, even though they may be flying the airline every week.
2: Wow. So back to United for a moment. Um, what is the advice Does this mean that flyers should perhaps be looking at other programs, that they'll get more bang for their loyalty buck that way?
1: Um, Yes. Uh, I I think that's, you know, for some people, that's a possibility. If you live in a united hub, that may be more difficult. Um, If you're in Denver, it's it's hard to say, oh, go fly Delta or American. You're not going to have as good service, but you may want to consider it. Um I, I would say in in general American is further behind on on these changes um but you have to assume they're coming now if if a top level flyer does want to switch um you can you can do with any airline you can do what what they call a status match uh, hmm. you can you can take your top status at uh at united and go to american or delta and and they'll say hey we'll give you you know close to top tier status but um it'll be good for 90 days and if you do so many flights in the in the next three months uh we'll give it to you for the year and and so you don't have to take a complete step backwards um certainly worth worth doing um but you know some people may be stuck and uh you know we see this I think this addresses um, uh, a lot of people who are sort of gaming the system. Yeah. Um, people who take very long flights on very cheap fares, uh, they can accumulate a lot of miles, and that, that used to get them top-tier status. Um, that's much more difficult. The people who get rewarded are the ones who are you know, flying uh, for business from New York to Chicago. Huh. Uh, and, uh, you know, a short flight, not a lot of miles, um, but often expensive. Uh, and so they're both racking up uh, flights and miles and they're gonna go up in in status. Hmm. And, and really those are the customers that United most wants.
2: Well, it's interesting. It leads me to wonder for the average leisure traveler, obviously it's different for biz travel folks who have to do this a lot, do miles matter anymore? Will people be able to accumulate enough miles? I mean, or is it all going to be shifted to credit card miles?
1: You know, it's a it's a really good question. Um, on on all of these airlines, when you travel, leisure trips or business trips, but um, I think it impacts leisure travelers more. Um, you, you you earn miles based on the ticket price now, right. not on on the distance flown. Um, so, uh, if you're traveling on inexpensive fares, um, you, you're not going to get a whole lot of miles. and you know, frankly, miles have been so devalued you're not going to get a lot of buying power out of them anyway. Right. Um, so yeah. I think I, I think in some ways for leisure travelers this is this is liberating um, in the sense that. It doesn't make a whole lot of sense to stay locked into one program. Okay, Um,
2: well, that's great advice. Thank you so much. We've been speaking with Scott McCartney of The Wall Street Journal. Read his column. Thank you, Scott. Sure. Good to be with you. Welcome back to The Travel Show. We started this hour talking about how to save money on food when you're traveling, because that's a big expense. Dad, you had some more tips? I
0: I have another tip. Nearly all the restaurants in a foreign city will specialize in a popular food item that are nearly always the lowest priced of all food items. You'll want to remember to order the following food specialties. In Madrid, uh, you, you order... Uh, the cold vegetable soup called gazpacho that nearly every restaurant mm, will yeah. have at a low price in Italy, and especially in Rome or Naples, you order pasta or pizza. Yes, in Mexico City you order tacos, and in Athens you order moussaka. That that city's uh, favorite course, always known known to be priced so low. In Tokyo, you order sushi. In London, you order fish and chips, uh-huh. uh, which are always cheap. While sushi Tel-
2: can be expensive in Tokyo, it depends on sushi, where you get it. Well, yeah, right, yeah,
0: that, that's true. You also order cheap in Tel Aviv. You order uh, you order hummus on on bread or crackers. And uh-huh. in Germany, you order uh,
2: the, the same the for bar- alcoholic drinks. I find in those areas of the world where beer is king you will often spend way too much money if you go for wine or cocktails and That's in other right, areas beer you know. is
0: what most people order and i was well, about to say that in germany you order bratwurst or you order <laughs> weisswurst and as a gi in in uh, in in uh, munich i used to look forward to my visits to the main railroad station because i could have weisswurst uh, which, I, which i regarded as the best of, of all foods in the world today if you follow these rules You'll be amazed at the size of your... Of your say, yeah, and I was going to
2: say in London, when you go into a pub, if you don't order a pint of beer, if you try to go for a cocktail or wine, you will pay sometimes five, six, seven times as much as you would. So I think your your point is well taken. You really want to go with the local specialties, and and you had talked earlier in the show about street food. Right in certain parts of the world, that is not a sacrifice eating street food. It's not like getting a hot dog stand when you don't have time for a sit-down meal. You go to places like Bangkok uh, or Taipei or Hoi An or Hanoi in Vietnam, and the street food is often better than what you get in the sit-down restaurants.
0: Absolutely right you are, Pauline. Street food is is a budget wonder, and that should always be perfect.
2: Now, the New York York Times had a really good article on not getting sick overseas because that's the thing you have to worry about with street food. So you want to go to the street food vendors that are very, very busy because that means they're preparing fresh food all the time. They're not letting it sit around and when it sits around that's when it can get iffy and they recommend if you're in a part of the world where people get gastrointestinal illnesses eat a Pepto-Bismol Before your meal, it will coat your stomach and make it harder for the critters to burrow in and make (laughs) you sick. And it actually works. We have to take a break. We thank you so much for listening. And to those who are traveling, a hearty
0: bon voyage.